My name is Jonas. I'm one of the pastors here. I love the opportunity getting to speak to, to you from God's Word. We have ushers that are going to be coming down the aisle. I'd love for you to take a copy of the Scriptures. If you don't have one, consider it a gift from us. If you just need to borrow one, welcome to the team. It's usually me that needs to borrow a Bible, and uh, I'll give you some page numbers along the way. I want to welcome those uh, who are attending online. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we'd love to see you next time you're available here in the church. And I want to encourage all of you to consider ways that you can be engaged in this season. At Bethel Church, we like to say that we're about the business of loving God, loving others, and serving the world. Uh, but, and then we, we'll use language like we want to connect with one another in community. We want to grow together in Christ. And then we want to make sure we're about the business of going both way over there and as simply as across the aisle. We want to be people who make much of Jesus in our community. Well, this morning we continue in our series uh, called Who Am I? And as we look at the text this morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 on page 971. To help you prepare for that, I want to acknowledge with you that uh, maybe what we've just sung, it might not have made a lot of sense to some of you if we're being honest. We just sang a lot about somebody's blood and the importance of this blood and how this blood cleanses. And that, that really is a strange thought, isn't it? That's that someone's blood that's so hard to get out of fabric, we know, uh, can actually cleanse us. And I want to remind you that by chapter 3 of the scriptures, we've learned, if you're reading about God's creative account, that we as human beings are self-oriented and we're distant from God. That's, that's where we start. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that God has told Adam and Eve, don't eat, literally you guys, you can do anything, but just don't eat that fruit over there. And being deceived and being led by their flesh and desiring that which God had said don't desire, they took of the fruit and they ate it, and in that moment, they felt shame. In that moment, they knew they were naked. In that moment, they were alone for the first time. You see, before them, they didn't, then they didn't know shame. They didn't know that they were naked. They didn't know that they were alone. And after a conversation with God, God, in his garden, takes the life of an animal and takes that animal's skin and covers them that they may not be naked and that their shame may be covered. And we see in the story of the scriptures that then God brings about uh, these sacrifices that are to be made. And these sacrifices remind them of their distance from God and of their need for God to intervene in their lives that they might be made right with him. And it just continues to build and to build. And we see in the law that there were daily sacrifices, there were monthly sacrifices, there were annual sacrifices, and none of it could ultimately satisfy until the one who is Jesus came. And he paid the ultimate price by dying a death on the cross that he did not deserve, but that fully satisfied the punishment that you and I absolutely deserved. Friends, truly, the blood of Jesus has washed us and made us clean if we are in Christ. But that leads to another problem. Because some of us, having believed this to be true, if the timeline of our life starts here and we're like many of 
you, I imagine, I grew up hearing this story. I heard about this great guy, Jesus, who was not just a man, he was God, and he came and he lived and he paid the penalty and the sacrifice for my sin, and I trusted him at a young age. And as the timeline of my life proceeded, I understood that the penalty for my sin had been paid in full by Jesus Christ, but the power of sin still resides in my flesh. And the battle, when we trust Christ, begins. Who will we obey? What will we do? And Paul has a lot to say about this, but I want to acknowledge with you that for some of you, if you're being honest right now, you're probably like I've been too often, and to my shame, you look in the mirror and you think to yourself, it's okay, God will forgive me anyway. And you give in, and you feel powerless. You have this sense like maybe the power of sin really isn't all taken care of. Maybe, maybe I'm just one who is going to struggle for the rest of my life. And brothers and sisters, yes, you will struggle. But the power of sin doesn't have to own you anymore. Let's look in the text in Romans chapter 8. And let's look for the hope that's here in this text for those of us who struggle knowing that the penalty of our sin is paid in full, but the power of sin still resides and is at war with our flesh. There's three words I want to encourage you to underline or take note of, and those three words are the law, the spirit, and the flesh. It's interesting to note in Romans 8, more than 20-some times, the word spirit is used. Um, God's Holy Spirit plays a huge role in what it looks like to grow in Christ. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son. In the likeness of sinful flesh, he was to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. If you're following along in the notes, the first thing I want you to see is that in Christ, you have been set free from the law of sin and death. In verse 8, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 1, this phrase, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, is tremendously good news. Because the reality is there is bad news in our world. Because of the indwelling nature of our sin and the reality that you and I sin because we're sinners, we learn early on in the book of Romans that this sin leads to death. And sin is like a cancer that eats at our souls. We read and we live this experience of deadness of soul apart from the life-giving work of Jesus. It's clear in the New Testament and other places that we are dead in our sin and our transgressions, and this is really bad news. As a defendant who stands before a judge and his sentence of death is read to him, he is but a dead man walking. 
The punishment has been determined, and it's just a matter of time before the reality sets in. Apart from Christ, the punishment of our sin is death. We are spiritually separated from our Heavenly Father because of the indwelling nature of our sin. By nature and by choice, we live apart from God, and that leads not just to physical death, but also spiritual death. But, thanks be to God. In Romans 5, we learn that Christ sets us free from the penalty of our sin. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespasses, that is Adam that I've told you about, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man who is Jesus Christ? Paul says, as the trespass of sin increases, God's grace increases even more. Here we see in Romans 8.1 that the condemnation of sin and death is removed for those who are in Christ. Paul reminds us that in Christ, the penalty of our sin is declared paid for. In Christ, you are set free from the death sentence that your sin earns because someone else has already paid that penalty. Look at verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. You'll notice in this passage several uses of the word law, and it's often used in different ways. Here in verse 2, it has to do with a principle that's generally true in life. Next Thursday, I'll join a team, a total of 18 of us, and we're going to get on an airplane, and we're going to go to Honduras for a week of ministry among our brothers and sisters in Tegucigalpa. I share that with you selfishly because I'd love for you to pray for us and pray for those we'll be ministering to. But I share that with you too to declare to you that I am going to, by faith, step into an airplane and believe that at least for a few moments, the principle of gravity can be overcome by the principles of aerodynamics. I am going to step out by faith and believe that this general rule that what goes up must come down can be overcome by a greater power that exists within that airplane. Friends, we are all operating by faith in something. What is or who is the object of your faith? For those few moments, I'm going to trust that that airplane will overpower the power of gravity. As I look out at you, I see that you, by faith, are sitting in that chair, and you believe that that chair will hold you up, which in fact it is. By design, it was designed to do so. But I also know that if I were to open the door of said airplane, all of a sudden, all of the other rules of gravity and, and, and everything else will be busted and, and other things will happen. Tragedy will happen. So too in the Christian life. Of course, that illustration is insufficient. And how much greater the beauty and safety and joy we have when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the greater power. Friends, in our humanity, we're governed by the law of sin and death. We're condemned in our flesh because our flesh drives us to live self-centered lives independent from God. Our flesh is certainly our body's flesh, but our flesh is also that weakness that lives within all of us that wants to live independent of God and oriented towards self. And until we die, we will battle with our flesh. But thanks be to God that the power of sin is being pressed back by the power of the Spirit of God who lives within us. 
Because you see, the law of the Spirit has set us free. And as I say that, I hope in your mind and in your heart, you hear these echoing words of Jesus from John chapter 5, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Because, friends, if you are in Christ, you have been set free. Though sentenced to death in our sin, in Christ, the judgment of our sin is paid for by Jesus himself. Romans 5 again, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. We have passed through death into life. And so Paul's argument continues where he contrasts this reality of life in the spirit versus life in the flesh. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In 8.3, we see another use of this word law, and that's the law of Moses. As you're reading and building up to Romans chapter 8, you will have passed through Romans 7, and there's this incredible battle that, that Paul gives a portrait of, of battling with the flesh, and, and, and he, it builds to this crescendo. Listen to his words at the end of chapter 7. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He cries and aches for the rescue, and then he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, maybe it won't hit you as intensely, but I imagine that you can relate to Paul and you can relate to me that the law is a tutor to teach us and to show us that in and of ourselves we're powerless to live freely. I remember a few years back, I was visiting my brother in northern Arizona, and we were having a very normal walk. We were walking through the park, everything was going as planned, right up until I saw the sign which said, stay off the grass. And for a moment, all I could think of was how badly I wanted to step off the sidewalk and into the grass. The sign became a tutor to me of what really lives within my heart. I was doing great right up until then, staying on the sidewalk. Maybe some of you can relate to the challenge it is to walk by a sign that says, don't touch wet paint. Anyone else have the sudden urge to test the theory and the truth of such a claim? As your hand goes down the wall and you pray that there's no evidence left, that it was in fact you who touched the wet paint. I don't know what you do with wet concrete. In a similar way, the law of Moses awakens within us our flesh which desires to live independent of God. This was the nature of this law. It was to awaken within humanity the realization that in our flesh we can't perform or achieve or rise to the occasion to meet the holiness that God demands and to help us realize that we need something greater, and that is Jesus who is our Savior. Look closely at verse 3. The text says, In the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. I love the richness of Paul's theology and how carefully he forms his words here. He affirms the reality that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He is not one that is like a human. He is human. 
And in his flesh, he did not sin like you and I do in our flesh. Notice in verse 1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because, according to verse 3, Jesus condemned this sin through his flesh so that the righteous requirements of the law would be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but who live according to the Spirit. We're going to see that word condemnation used one more time in verse 33. The offering of Jesus paid in full the righteous demands of the holiness of God. And brothers and sisters, that is tremendous news. The penalty of our sin is paid in full in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are set free in Christ. And the punishment which you deserve because of your sin is paid for by the only one who can satisfy such a death, debt, who is Christ. And we realize as we step out by faith into obedience to Christ that there is a battle that will take place within our souls. As those who began self-centered and God-independent lives, we now have the freedom in Christ to live according to the Spirit. And we enter into the battle of saying no to our flesh and yes to God. Look at verses 5 through 8. But those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it even do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Your mind has a role to play. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But you who are in Christ have a choice to make. Will your mind be set on the things of the flesh and the things which orient you to yourself and to this world and to the weaknesses of all that is? Or will you set your mind on the things which are of Christ? I deeply appreciate Pastor Andy's recommendation of the, uh, the book that was handed out. I hope that you'll take time to read it because one of the gifts he gives us in this book is that, yes, we are sinners who sin, but it does not stay that way. In Christ, we become saints who sin. We are redefined not by our sin, but by who we are in Christ. The power of sin is being weakened as we grow in Jesus. This contrast of the flesh and the spirit cannot be more severe. One leads to death while one leads to life and peace. One is hostile to God. One is not. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. 
For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. Dr. Whitmer summarizes verse 10. He says, because of God's imputed righteousness, a believer is alive spiritually. The eternal spiritual life of God is implanted by the indwelling Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ here and now, even even though a believer's body is mortal. Friends, if you are in Christ, you have been made alive. And the next time you feel powerless to say no to your flesh, remember that the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. You are declared a saint. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. This is who you are. The penalty of sin is satisfied on the cross of Jesus Christ. And the power of sin... Well, brothers and sisters, we're going to fight that. But we have the one who raised Jesus from the dead indwelling in us that we might go to battle with the selfish, God-independent flesh. Look at verse 15. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received... Brought through your adoption to sonship, and in him we cry, Abba, Father. This spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. There's different words used here in adoption and children and son and such. It's profound how careful Paul is in his language. He says, you, uh, this first word in sonship, are like a mature child, mature enough to take on adult family privileges and responsibilities. In Christ, you and I are heirs to a promise. We're, we're recipients of Jesus' spiritual blessings. You and I, in Christ, we have been adopted and chosen. You think about the one who serves their master, the slave, is always worried about their performance. Do I measure up? What penalty should I expect when I don't measure up? But as a son of a father who genuinely loves you, we are loved beyond what we could even ask or imagine. Many have not experienced this kind of love this side of heaven, but God has declared this to be true, and he seeks you. Don't be like the religious person that says, oh, I messed up, I've got to run from God or I've got to perform for God. Be like the son or daughter that said, I messed up, I need to call dad. Right? He loves you. I love how one commentator summarized this thought. He said, I have God as my father. He has paid for me. He has adopted me. He cares for me. He wants me. He loves me. He protects me. He provides for me. He has made me an heir of all that he knows and all that he owns. God is my father. It's only three times in the text that you see this phrase, Abba, Father. The other time was in Mark chapter 14 where Jesus was speaking to his father in heaven. Abba is simply an Aramaic word that that speaks to the the intensity, the purity, 
the, the closeness of what it means for a child to know their dad. I don't want to cheapen the word in any way by calling it daddy. But for some of you, that might help you. God is, is your dad. And he loves you like no earthly father could ever love you, even more so. How much more? He loves you. He protects you. He provides for you. He's made you an heir to all that he owned. Truly, he is your father if you are in Christ. And we are assured here of God's care for his children. How fittingly, then, that our Lord's prayer begins with our Father who art in heaven. In Christ, we are God's children with all the rights and privileges and also the responsibilities. Verse 12 uses the word obligation. If Jesus is our greater brother and and we are co-heirs with him, then we should expect that in this life we will experience, and Paul goes right here to the sufferings of Jesus. Part of being in God's family is that you get to be about God's business. And God's business is to bring the message of the hope of Jesus to all, and some will not like it. John 16 says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul knew this would be a challenge. He said to his spiritual son, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. If you are in Christ, then the Spirit of Christ lives within you and you are no longer condemned by sin. You are set free. I have two more points I want you to catch on the outlines, truth statements about you. And to get there, I want us to jump ahead in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? There we see that word again. No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The next truth I want you to see about yourself is that if you are in Christ, you are justified. You are declared righteous before the judge, before the Father. Now, you and I know that in this world, we live in a broken reality. We know that in our flesh, we are oriented to ourself and independent of God. And we also know that we have an enemy who prowls around like a lion waiting to attack and to devour his enemy who are those who are in Christ. We have an enemy who stands as an accuser and a liar. But we also know, according to the New Testament, that all of creation has been placed under the authority of Jesus. He's not just our lawyer who defends us, he's also the judge. But how much more so, he's the one who's paid the penalty for that which we are being accused of. We read in Job how Satan goes before the throne of God and says, how about that one? Can I get after him? And and God sets limits but allows him to go after him. Satan is this tremendous accuser. Some of you feel this intensely at times. Your mind is reminded of all your sin, past and present. You hear the lies of the enemy between your ears. 
you know the gravity of your sin, and I want to remind you today that the judge of all creation, when you are in him, when you stand accused, you stand in Jesus, and it's him who justifies, it's him who forgives, and in him there is no condemnation. You are declared righteous. That good news gets better because in verse 34, we see that Jesus is in fact interceding for us. Dr. Whitmer summarizes this this way. He says, The death of the Lord Jesus on our behalf would avail little apart from his resurrection. It is the living Lord that ensures the security of God's eternal purpose. Consequently, he is now sitting at the right hand of God where he is highly exalted in glory and sovereignty. By the authority which is innate to his deity, the Lord Jesus makes intercession for us to God the Father. By his victorious death, his victorious resurrection, his victorious ascension into heaven, and his victorious intercession for us, the Lord Jesus has sealed the eternal purpose of God. In the whole universe, there is nothing which can provide greater insurance than the finished work of Jesus Christ. Friends, if today you feel the weight of this world, the weight of your flesh, the weight of your enemy, remember that in Christ you have been set free. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to give an opportunity for people to be baptized at our Easter service. And I would encourage you to follow the Lord Jesus in obedience to baptism. One of the things you're going to witness is that as people are, are buried and immersed in the water, we have this tremendous visual picture of what it means to die with Jesus to be identified in his death, and then to be raised in newness of life. That, that's what we're talking about here. You have been, the penalty of your sin is made dead, and you are raised to new life. I encourage you, if you've not trusted this work of Jesus, that you would do that today. Hebrews 7 says, Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The next time your flesh tells you about your past, I hope you'll remember Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your past, present, and future sin was paid for at the cross. And by the work of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, you can now live according to how God defines you, not how your past defines you. As I was processing how to summarize so much of what I wanted to say, I came across an article that Jen Wilkin wrote. She's a tremendous Bible teacher. I hope you'll take advantage of her resources as you have opportunity. I find it hard to improve upon what she wrote because she, like I, grew up in the church. I grew up going down the aisle and saying, yes, Lord, I need saved again. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Because I didn't realize that there had been a time when the penalty for my sin had been paid for, but the power of sin was overwhelming to me. Jen writes, maybe you too have found salvation mystifying. Maybe you've wondered if I'm really saved, why don't I feel fully free? Well, that's because you're not free yet, but you will be. Our complete freedom from sin is certain, but it's not sudden. 
So we rest confidently in our justification. We labor diligently in our sanctification. And we hope expectantly in our glorification. She writes, be assured of your justification. It was. One day you were freed fully from the penalty of your sin. On that day when you trusted Christ, the penalty of your sin was paid in full. She continues, be patient with your sanctification. It is. Each day you are being freed increasingly from the power of sin when you are being led by the Spirit. She writes, be eager for your glorification. It is to come. One day you will be freed finally from the presence of sin. What a tremendous hope, brothers and sisters. We do not struggle without purpose. We look forward to a day when the presence of sin is no more. And today, right now, present tense, if you are in Christ, you have a Savior who is Jesus, who lives to intercede for you even now. As judge and advocate, you are safe in Christ, because in Christ, you are no longer condemned. I want to leave you with this one thing, and it's really quite simple. I hope that this week you'll set to memory Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And that as you have occasion to be tempted by your flesh to believe or by your enemy or by this world to believe something that used to be true of you but is no longer true of you because you are in Christ, that you will remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this hope that we have in Jesus. Father, certainly, we don't always live like it. And I thank you that in those moments where we find ourselves behaving as self-centered and God-independent people, that you don't leave us alone. Father, thank you for your spirit who convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. The one who reminds us that when we confess our sins to you, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, would you do your work here again today? I pray for my friends here, God, that you would stir among us a heart to live for you because of who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.